Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Hi, this is Michael Waits from ATP Stories. I'm talking to Rishi Yasrani, who seems very eager to start because he almost interrupted me when I was doing my introduction. How are you? I'm good, Michael. What was that all about? I heard you take a deep breath. Did you want to say something before I started? No, no, no. I just want to say hi. I'm glad to be on the show. It's glad to, I'm glad to have you here. So why don't we back up a little bit, and I want to come up to Simplistic Inventions in a second, but it's better for me if I figure out like where you're from and a little bit of the backstory. So why don't we do a little bit of history and just find out like where you're from originally and how you got to here. Um, I grew up in a small town in India called Lucknow. Awesome. And I think growing up, it was the time when... Uh, Computers were just beginning to surface up in at least in my city, and uh, I always wanted to build something like Microsoft. And in my naive optimism, I called my company, my fictional company, RK Soft. And uh, of course, this was my teenage years, and um, somehow I ended up um, landing in Singapore uh, to study computer science. And I started my first company, which was a mobile security software company. And once that got acquired by McAfee, I landed into Zimplistic, which is actually a company that my wife started. And the story is she looked at me doing uh, 10Cube, which was my company, and said, if this guy could do it, why couldn't she? And uh, <laughs> that's the story of Zimplistic started. I like her spirit. So how, right. did, you, how did you get to Singapore? Right, and so I'm a small town kid as well, and I don't know if there's an equivalency there, but I'm sometimes amazed that I found my way, you know, outside of the few small towns where I grew up, and ended up leaving the United States when I was 24. So I was probably a little bit older than when you left, and I've never lived back in the United States since then. Yeah, you know, uh, when you when you look back, I don't know somehow how the dots connect, but it was more luck than than I can take credit for. Tell me. So I, after my uh, A-levels, I somehow decided to not study anymore. And I thought I knew enough uh, in the field of computers to start something on my own, but I was quite naive. And, and I think I, so I dropped a year doing nothing when most of my friends were preparing for engineering or medical school. I was looking at trying to find something to do on my own. And I saw uh, an emotional movie about college life. And I thought, you know what? I could start up later, but I didn't want to miss on college life. So what was the movie? I can't really remember. Oh, come on. It must have been like St. Almost Fire or something like that. Anyway, <laughs> so so were you involved in... I think the movie was called Joe Jita Vahi Sikandar. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. But were you involved in computers? So were you already programming when you were doing your A-levels? Were you building computers from scratch and stuff like that? Actually, I, I just fell in love with software very, very early on. I think I must have been uh, 12 or 13 when uh, it's the software bug bit me. And it's just been, from then till now, actually, it's it's just grown and grown and grown my interest. I remember uh, in school, I would spend all nights screwing something up on the computer software and then trying to fix it for the next few days. And it was a repeated cycle. Those were the days of no internet. And if something went wrong, you had to sort of find your way through it. There was no, you know, no books around. And I mean, not so many books around. Uh, it was very early days for at least the in the Indian ecosystem in my city. It was very, very early. 
Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, right? Today there was there's GitHub and just thousands of different of ways to share information. There are you know forums for everything. If you have a question, I broke this thing in Windows, or I don't know how Unix works, or how do I write this in PHP or in Ruby? There's somebody out there that knows, and there's somebody out there that wants to help, right? I mean, and then there's all the open source stuff. But back in the day, you're sitting at home on your IBM PC or your IBM compatible, and you're like, okay, now what do I do? The days of the 386 and the 486. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So how did you get into building security software? Like, where does that come from? I think it's always been around problem solving. And if it, you know, if it was a purely software problem, there was more confidence or understanding of how to solve it. So I think in an event in a friend, uh, an outing happened where a friend of ours lost a phone. And uh, somehow the conversation led to thinking that, you know, how, how and why should you lose a phone? It's a connected device. And uh, there should be a way to manage this whole security around device and data loss. And started as a fun thought and it ended up in being a reasonably successful company. So it's just, we, we, we wanted to build a product for ourselves. We were very poor then, poor students. And uh, it was the beginning of the smartphone smartphone era. Nokia was launching some smartphones and phones used to be extremely expensive. Very. Very expensive. So losing a phone was... Uh, oh God, it was horrible. Yeah, it was horrible, horrible. So I think out of necessity, that uh, company was formed. And uh, to, to, to sort of, if I were to explain in a very simple sentence what we did, we were the precursor to the Find My iPhone much before the oh. iPhone was even launched. So that's what I was going to ask you. Is what kind of, you were dealing mostly, I mean, back then it was almost all Nokia phones, right? I mean, Motorola did a little stuff, but very little of it was international. Yeah. And what was it? Symbian was the operating system you were working yeah. on? Was it before that? It the... was Symbian and Windows uh, oh, yes. CE to a certain extent. And that's it. That was all there was out there. So how did it work? In other words, you had a connected device that presumably you could find on your laptop or on your PC. Yeah. So the way it worked was, um, so on, on, this, on a Symbian operating system, you, you could detect the switch of a SIM card. And based on that switch, uh, the phone would either lock, depending on your settings, either lock or switch to a more restricted privacy setting so that others could not look at your data. And we also did a, a real-time data sync uh, for all your important data. I mean, those were the times when, you know, if you lost your phone, you had your contact list was actually manually synced to the PC. Yeah. Uh, Over we were a cable, a it was system. hard. Yeah, yeah, we were a cloud-based system, so your data was properly backed up or synced uh, with the cloud. And even if you could not recover the phone or if you damaged the phone somehow, your new phone could download that information easily. Yeah, I mean, this was a big problem for me as well. So when I was in Japan, right, at that time, I'm, I'm guessing it was early 2000s, right? And at that time, <clears throat> you know, before the iPhone, before smartphones, the, you couldn't even, at least the phones that I had, on the Docomo system, you couldn't even connect to your PC. And there was sort of third-party software. Yeah, Docomo didn't publish it that allowed you to do some stuff, but boy, it was really hard. It was really hard. And, and it's so encouraging to see how the world has moved. And so far, it's moved so quickly. You know, now now even talking about it again with you makes me wonder how, how backward were we in those times and how much we've moved. Well, it's just so interesting to think about 
you know, because in my mind, like the whole phone revolution started with the iPhone. I remember getting the first iPhone when I was in Tokyo and yeah. just it was a paradigm change in everything that I was doing at the time. But but frankly, before that, I had plenty of other phones that I didn't think were that bad. And you're right. Losing them was terrible because my last Docomo phone cost me 80,000 yen and it wasn't subsidized. Mm-hmm. And I just thought if I lose this thing, like no one's going to be more upset than I am, right? I know, absolutely. But again, because I didn't keep a manual phone book, I didn't write down people's phone numbers. I just plugged them in and the data entry was terrible. And it even meant that if I got a new phone, I had to give it back to them so they could transfer all the data. And it seemed like magic or black magic to me because there was no way you could do that yourself in a way that a normal person found easy. Right now, you just kind of log in, set it up, and you're done. But you were using cloud. What kind of cloud stuff did you build? Like what cloud was it on? So those days, you know, the what I meant was, you know, you didn't need any cables to to transmit any of this information. It uh, would go over the internet, and we were in those days. We were earlier hosting it ourselves. Uh, I, if I remember correctly, we were on Rackspace, and then over time, we did move to AWS. When you know, I think AWS was probably launched later than that. Yeah, because I was going to say back then, there was no cloud really. Yeah, maybe Rackspace, but there definitely was no AWS back in the early 2000s. Not that I remember. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, what was it like when, you know, McAfee was the kind of default standard for, what's the right word for security, right? Antivirus uh, yeah. security. I mean, those guys kind of invented that space. Say whatever you want about Mister McAfee. He's kind of. I know. Better not to talk about it. Yeah, him. he's just turned into an interesting character for like, I don't, I don't really feel like talking about other people's personalities, right? It is what it is. But, but McAfee itself was a groundbreaking company in the security space. And what was it like being acquired? Like, was it something you thought about when you were building it? Or was it just like, look, we want to build this product. We want to build this company. We want to build it for us and for our friends and family because what happens if something gets lost? Like, what was the whole concept around getting acquired? That's interesting, actually, back in the day, no? I know. And I think uh, till the point where McAfee contacted, contacted us, we never thought of ever getting acquired or thinking about acquisition. And also in those days, at least here in Asia, the ecosystem was so young. Yeah. We were almost one of the first few acquisitions out of Singapore. Wait, so it was, what year was that? We were acquired in 2008. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, yes. I mean, I don't think. And what was the name of your company again? Ten Cube. Did, Ten did Cube. Say, yeah. No, did, did I say 2008? No, I think it's 2010. Yeah. Sorry, 2010. Okay, but still, that's a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, that's a long time ago. I mean, I I kind of say that the initiation of this ecosystem, at any kind of scale, right? I mean, you can say it was whenever you want, but really, 2012 was when th- people started thinking, like, okay. There's kind of something going on in every country. Investments are taking place and people are paying attention. But prior to that, it was just a community maybe more than anything. I don't know. It's hard to even explain what it was like back then. But things have changed rapidly, as you know. Absolutely. And I think now if you look at the the bulk of the capital, it's going in the region. And uh, there's a large amount of capital going in the region. And you have, you know, I recently read Tencent has reached a $500 billion valuation as a company and that's just phenomenal uh, to hear oh it's super for everybody right and when i look at 
you know, again, we were talking about this visibility. Maybe we were talking about it offline, but you know, when I, one of the reasons why I want to do this is because I want to give visibility to the companies that are here so that their valuations can be higher, right? Because so people understand what's going on. And yet every day that we do this, you see companies like Tencent, Alibaba, KKR now, right? We talked about the investment that they've made in e-commerce coming into the region saying, these things are way too undervalued still. And that's one of the reasons why you're seeing so much money pour in. I, I think it's too too fronted, right? One is the region itself is just growing so fast. And if you're not involved here, you're just missing a massive opportunity. But the second thing is it's underfunded. I mean, it's undervalued as well, not, definitely not underfunded. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's how most ecosystems develop. Uh, you know, when you're very far away from yeah. an ecosystem, it takes a while for the world to, you know, information percolates at a slower space sort of slower rate and, and and we can see that happening so that's the good news that it's actually um growing exponentially yeah i i think you're right i mean i love the fact that it's growing and not that any of us need it but it validates the fact that we've been sort of talking about for the last few years and that is there's a massive opportunity here and i still think we're early days right i don't think this game is over at any level i agree i mean it's very early days so and... go ahead sorry and we haven't seen, you know, the spillover effect of successful companies is also going to start the ball rolling. You know, people who come out of successful companies start their own companies. And it's just, it just grows that way. And, and it's great to see, have, see that happening. Yeah, I mean, look, we're just in the first iteration of what's happening out here. If you think of venture capital, the United States has been around for 40 or 50 years. And there are cycles that are associated with it. And I think it's somewhere like to five or seven year cycles, depending on how you define them. And we're just in the first cycle. And like yeah. you said, the spillover is going to be when successful people come out of successful companies, take some of the money that they earned, pour it into their own companies. And, you know, the talent pool increases. It's just a self It's a virtuous circle, right? I know. I, know. I think we're right at the beginning of it. I agree. So after you sold your company, did you take any time off? Or did you just, your wife just looked at you and said, oh, my God, if you can do this, I could definitely do it. <laughs> So, so she started. Uh, she started this company in 2008. This is uh, the time when, uh, when I was still with TenQ, and uh, I remember we we were married. We we got married very early, and uh, we were sharing an apartment with three or four other people, trying to save money in all possible scenarios. And uh, I remember a conversation. We were setting up an office in India, and I was chatting with her, and she says. Uh, that look, I have spent a year figuring out, two years figuring out how to take a concept to production, how to build complex products, electromechanical products. I think I've learned enough. I want to quit. So, and she quit the next day. Quit her. She had a job somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. So she worked for two years. And I think we have similar stories before uh, GenCube. I also worked for two years. Uh, so she worked for two years uh, at a design firm and then she quit and then she started Zimplistic. And as, and in the first two years, she was working on it uh, without me. And in 2010, when uh, 10Q was acquired, I actually wanted to see how large companies work. And I've never worked in one before. So I wanted to stay. Actually, I want I had the intention of staying with McAfee for a while. Uh but uh, in six months only, I think uh, she needed me to join her as the product was evolving more into a consumer robotics product versus a traditional hardware. And it had a strong uh, need for somebody to lead the software side of it. So Pranati is a mechanical engineer by training. Right. 
So I left a lot, large part of my earnout, and I joined uh, Simplistic. Good for you. Yeah. Because I was going to ask you, software moving from software to hardware, it's like two completely different things. But if you're talking about building um, robotics as opposed to a more standard consumer electronics product, then there has to be a decent software component in it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it was a very interesting uh, shift for me because, you know, when you say when you talk about software, uh, all software is not created equal. When you work on in embedded systems. The whole game is very, very different. Concepts are similar, but uh, you know the platforms are are very custom, and you have to go to the bit level. And I hadn't done that before. This was my first. Uh, I was mostly a, a high level, application level software guy, and it was extremely exciting to to check out how the firmware world worked. And and uh, I ended up writing the first version of the Rodimatic firmware. Uh, a lot of a lot of my software thinking, I feel, I mean, time that time will tell, but I think it helped a lot because uh, software people think in more abstract, big building blocks, putting things together sort of concept. Mm-hmm. And once Rodimatic became a connected device, it's an interplay between software as we mostly know it and firmware together. And that was a, you know, in 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 hindsight, like I said, a lot of the dots connected. Yeah, I'm just trying to think about how to explain this to people that don't necessarily fully understand software, right? In the sense of, so embedded systems, are, like you said, it's a very different animal. The concepts can be similar, but you're talking more directly to a machine. So, for example, when you write an embedded system, I mean, for our first version, there was no operating system involved. Right. That's the thing. So is you, exactly. you, you don't have an abstraction layer there. You t- that's what I said. You're talking directly to the to the machine, machine itself, yeah. yeah? Absolutely. And... Uh, yeah, so you're toggling the bits, you're writing your own schedulers, you're writing your own uh, time-sharing mechanisms. It's just very, very, very primitive from a primitive, and it had to be in those days because, uh, you know, memory and processing power are big constraints. Yeah, so how did, like, what were you, what do you write it in, right? Because there there were some systems out there that were built, some operating systems that were built for embedded systems, right? I think... BlackBerry probably bought one back in the day when they were trying to move into their touch stuff, which was, I can't remember the name of it, Q something. I can't remember what it was called. But what were you, what kind of software were you writing? What were you using to write it? So we built our uh, product on the microchip platform. Okay. And what it's just, what that means is that you have, uh, you have to abide by that instruction set and uh, the, the basic programming was done in C. And, see, makes sense. and you know, if I if I if I were to really, really, really simplify it, actually, what ends up happening is uh, the processor starts from the first line of code you see, and it just goes executes every line in order. So the simplest program would be, you know, if you write a while loop, mm-hmm. it'll just keep spinning in that while loop, and within the while loop, you can put various other constructs to. So basically, you're actually the entire program is is an event loop of sorts. But of course, Rodimatic became way too complex, and we are now upgrading our systems to use a real-time operating system. So, just for people that are listening, what was the concept behind Rodimatic to begin with? What did the software, the embedded system software, do? And then we'll address like how it changed and how it got so complex that you needed to change the way you wrote software for it. Right. 
So, you know, as with most entrepreneurs, when you look at a problem or a big problem that you don't understand, sometimes you oversimplify it. And I think that's what happened with us. Okay. Uh, we looked at, we looked at uh, so from a, you know, from a problem and the size of the problem and the relevance of the problem, somehow growing up as an Indian, you know it. It's not something you need to convince yourself of. <laughs> there are more than a billion people who eat rotis and there are more than... Uh, that's 25% of the world's population eats different types of flatbread and roti magic today makes tortillas, it makes uh, pizza bases, so it, it makes wraps, it makes various types of flatbread, but I think we started looking at it as a roti problem and for us, it was something so incredibly difficult to make, so tedious, hmm. and we just couldn't believe that nobody had tried to build a simple product in our in our naive heads uh, eight years ago, a simple product that would take a dough maker, which exists in the food processor category. Yep. And there are these flat pressing pans that you can use to make boppers and just put them together. That's that's what that's how we were thinking eight years ago. <laughs> so easy, right? So easy. We thought, you know, what's the big deal? How come <laughs> nobody has ever succeeded? Maybe we are the smartest. And uh I think within the first two, two and a half years, we realized that it's not the these hardware parts that's going to be the challenge. It's the software because when you when human beings operate a dough maker, they figure out how much flour and water to put in and they keep adjusting when it's being made. Because you cannot predetermine the flour and water quantity for making great dough. It's just not possible because of the huge amount of variance in uh, the flour, different types of flour and different seasonality in flour, flour and water. Right. So then we realized that, you know, anything that humans find a non-issue to do, computers find extremely hard to do. If you look at computer vision, if you look at speech processing, all these basic things that we find were extremely easy to do, computers are struggling still. And for us, this human judgment element of being able to figure out automatically how good the dough was, when the roti was cooked, when was it ready, those turned out to be the most challenging. So there was a lot of uh, machine learning concepts we had to apply to model the domain, to be able to predict the dough development, to be able to make a, a roti or a flatbread at that speed. What was the speed that it had to get made at? So... It takes us between 60 to 90 seconds to make a roti. So it comes out really, really fast. So what if you made it manually? In other words, let's say I go into, let's say you're in your family, I came to your house, you're going to make a roti for dinner. How long would it take to make one? So so the way, so there's a little bit of a difference. So manually, it takes uh, close to 30 to, to 40 minutes. That's what I want to know. Yeah, it's a very long time. And, you know, by the time you, you end up making these rotis, you are sweating all over because you have to make them over a naked flame. Uh, it's just extremely, it's hotter than regular cooking because you get exposed to the to the heat of the naked flame. So can I just make sure I understand this? And I could be wrong, right? I'm, I'm often wrong with these things. But a roti gets made in that, it gets made in a deep vertical oven, right? <clears throat> so that's one type of roti. Okay. That's called tandoori roti. And the other type of roti that people make at home, people don't have the deep vertical ovens. The other type of rotis people eat at home are made on the skillet. So if I were to take you through the process, what uh, what traditionally human beings manually did, or they do, is take a 
let's say I need to make 10 rotis. I take flour for 10. Yep. I'll start mixing it and I'll uh, keep adjusting the flour or the water depending on whether it's too sticky or too dry. And then once I have my big blob of dough ready, I take a, I'll take out small pieces of, I'll make dough balls out of it. I individually roll them and then individually cook them. So you make it flat, you put it into a skillet that's at a certain temperature that has probably, and I'm guessing, yeah, but probably has a little bit of oil on there. That probably gets iterated as well. And then each yeah. one of them is probably cooked for approximately the same amount of time. But again, because the dough amount might be slightly different, it's cooked a little bit shorter, a little bit longer. Like it's an iterative process in a way. Yeah, right? you, have you have to keep looking at it. You have to keep looking at the skillet and see, okay, is it bubbling? When it bubbles, you have to flip. When you And after you it reaches a certain color, you need to put it on the flame for it to puff. And when it puffs, it actually cooks it from the inside because of the steam that's generated. Internally. So let's say, yeah, and let's say if you don't roll it evenly, in some places it'll puff and some places it'll not puff. Right. So most of the people find the dough making process to be extremely tedious and messy because you have to soil your hands and yep. if, you're, if you're kneading for large quantities, it's a lot of physical effort. Then the second part of uh, rolling it out into a thin flat disc, and we're talking about a flat disc that's one mm in thickness. That's really, really thin. You can almost, you know, see through. See through uh, it. Yeah, no, I know. It's interesting. So it's thin and, and, you know, unfor and unfortunately for most people, it has to be extremely even. If it's uneven, it doesn't cook at the same rate in all places, which means it doesn't puff later and which means it remains uncooked from the inside. Which means it doesn't taste good. Like that's the whole point, right? True, true. And it's uncooked, so it's not healthy for you too. Right. So you're trying to solve this problem. I just wanted to explain to people who may or may not be sure what roti is. Like it's not a simple process. It's not like taking a piece of toast, putting it in a toaster, pressing a button, comes out because there are coils on each side and it's just done the same way every time. And even that's not so so standardized. I, I roti is really simple. hard. I wish, but it's extremely complicated. You know, most human beings uh, struggle for a very long time and a lot of, lot of the people in our generation actually give up because they find this to be the hardest. And, you know, on, on a funny note, in the olden days, of uh, arranged marriages, and I want to say, you know, arranged marriages don't still happen. No, don't happen so much in India anymore. People still think that they do happen. Right. So, in the, anyways, in the olden days, uh, the woman of the house would interview the to-be daughter-in-law, and the first question they'd ask is if the daughter-in-law knew how to make rotis. Right. It was enough. almost like a, a, you know, a report card for knowing how to cook. That's kind of really cool, isn't it? In a way. Yeah. Wow. Sorry, I'm just trying to wrap my head around that. That's such a great sort of cultural insight, right? It's like, can my daughter-in-law make roti at the same level that I can? But this is a tough problem to solve mechanically, electronically, and in software. I mean, that's kind of what we're talking about, right? Yeah. So and, how, did, uh, how did that happen? So how did it happen, like, from beginning to now? It just seems like a completely iterative process. We've, we've been through more than 17, 18 different prototypes, and... Uh, at the end, when you look at it, there are many, many processes involved from uh, dispensing of flour, which you don't see in any commodity hardware in your home. Of course, it's in the pharmaceutical industry, but we had to do it at the consumer price point. So from dispensing of flour, as you know, rotimatic and simplistic, we have strong proponents of control that people should have. And we believe people should be able to put the ingredients they want not the ingredients that, you know, we want them to have. And that's the whole premise around building a 
a machine that gives you the convenience you need to lead a healthy life um, with all the control you need. So if you look at the supermarket culture, you can get great, great convenience without much control because you don't know what's going in your food. Right, which is bad. Frankly. And it's the same with fast food culture. Uh, you go to a fast food chain and you it's great convenience. It's great economy, but absolutely no control. And it's simplistic. Our mission is to marry the two. Convenience with control. Okay. So how, do, so how does that work now? And like what's happening on the software side? What's happening on the mechanical side, on the electronic side? I'm really curious now what the status is of this. Is it just one machine that you sell or is it a series of them? No, it's uh, one machine that integrates a series of sub-machines, if you may. Please. If I were to take you to the rotimatic process, which is different from the manual process. Tell me. There is a container for flour, water, and oil. These are the containers where you store your ingredients. And then you punch in how many breads you want. And the beauty of rotimatic is, and one of the key process innovations we have uh, compared to the manual method is, we make one dough ball at a time. And we call it micro-kneading. So it makes the job of, uh, it makes the system more sensitive. So anyway, so you you have the dispensing section, then you have the kneading section. From the kneading section, the dough ball, once it's made, it moves into the pressing section. And while the dough is getting pressed and then later roasted, the next dough ball in sequence is being made. So there's some parallel processing that happens. Wow. And uh, all this is accomplished using, there are 10 different motors in the machine. There are 15 sensors and close to 200 plus parts that move to, to get you a roti. So it's a, it's a complex electromechanical circus that happens to mimic something, you know, a human being uh, seems to do very effortlessly once they learn. I was going to say, I was going to say, so like somebody's grandfather could do this kind of without thinking about it after doing it for decades, right? It's just like yeah, making basically. a roti while probably programming a computer at the same time or something, right? So, so yeah, so it's, it, it took us eight years. So this product was uh, in R&D for eight years. Wow. And uh, we have 35 patents filed for this. So it's a, it was a mega, mega challenge. We are a team of 120 people. And out of the 120, the majority of the people are, majority of our team is engineers and manufacturing people and quality people, which is all around product development. Yeah. Wow. So this is like a, this is a huge endeavor. And is it's it, what, what percentage of the engineers are software engineers and hardware, or is it mostly hardware? No. So the largest team is software. Software team is close to 20 people. And, uh, um, when I say, you know, in Zimplistic, when we say software, we, we are moving into a world where the boundaries between software and the traditional firmware are going to merge. They're already merging. It's blurry. And, yeah, it's, it's very blurry right now. Yeah, it's very blurry right now. And as devices get connected to the internet, as they become internet enabled, the whole IoT wave is again blurring it even further because now part of the intelligence of your device actually lives in the cloud. And uh, it becomes one big giant you know, ecosystem of devices and, and information and intelligence that works together. And, and in our case, we've actually used it uh, to innovate on the, on the after sales service part of the business. So when you're in, a, in, a, in an old school setup, if your microwave or your washing machine or your uh, refrigerator were to not work or there, if there was a problem there, 
you'd had you'll have to call somebody to either come over or take this device to some service center there's a lot of time and frustration and coordination required to to get to get get to your problem solution with rotimatic we took a slightly different approach rotimatic is a connected device and uh, our users have a rotimatic app which they could use not just to look at the new recipes but also to chat with our customer service so if they have any issues or they have any questions they chat with us and the instant we receive a chat we actually already know what's going on with the machine because it's connected so it must send data back to the yes, service center does, right it does send data back to the service center and uh, like i said because there are so many different permutations of flours people are still trying to understand what a flatbread making platform can do mm. Many a times we realize that there's user setting issues. So there are many, many things we fix remotely with configuration or settings and instantly. So it's great customer experience and it's an, it's a use case of leveraging technology to deliver the experience that would have been impossible to deliver otherwise. Yeah, again, I'm just trying to get my head around the implications of this, right? So that means that I buy a Rotimatic machine, right? I plug it in, it's got what is it? Wireless probably connectivity to the internet, right? Yep. So it sends data back over a cloud. I guess when I get it, I log in and create some kind of user ID or maybe it's anonymous, but it, whatever it is, you know what I'm doing or someone knows has access to that data. And I guess most people aren't worried about the privacy around how much flatbed they're making, right? So people yep. are probably happy to share that data, particularly if it helps them service the machine. Right. But what's really neat is that <clears throat> Besides the fact that, and I'm going to get the number wrong, so please forgive me, but you have 200 and something moving parts in there, yeah, right? And software and form, firmware that you said is blurring that's both running the machine but also sending information back to the cloud for everybody that owns one too. Yep. Just the implications of this are huge. Remember, this is only one device. Absolutely. And so, for example, when people bought Rotimatic, it only came with, it only made rotis. Right. And... If you go to our website or look at the roadmap, in the next six to eight months, it'll make pizza, it'll make tortillas, it'll make various types of wraps, it's going to make gluten-free wraps. So there's a, such a huge variety that's coming in. And for for the end user, our marketing pitch, la, pitch line is one hardware, one rotimatic, many software upgrades. All these new recipes come through you come to you through a software upgrade. You have to do nothing. Yeah, I mean, all you really need is the flour, the water, and the oil, or whatever other ingredient. You know, spices. I'm guessing are probably possible as well. You put some garlic in there. You put some who knows what chili. There's got to be a whole bunch of different ways to make it, and that's just for the roti, not including the other things you were just talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And there's corn flour. There are so many different types of flour. Sure. So there's a so the possibilities are endless for us uh, because it's connected. Otherwise, you know, if you bought a machine, we would not be able to easily upgrade it for you. But not only that, I mean, <laughs> I hate to say this, but you probably even know how many people are in my family by the number of roti that I use, even if I haven't told you. Like, there's just so much data around this in in certain senses. Like, you could become a flower seller. You could deliver water to people's houses every day. You could be the oil team. You know, you know if I'm using tomatoes, so you could send me to... Like, there's so many ways to build a massive business around this. And... If you're selling it as a device that's health-related as well, at some level you are creating health data too. There's just a lot of interesting iterations around this machine. And the learning that you have from this is probably allowing you to conceptualize other machines as well. Is that fair to say? 
Absolutely, absolutely. You know, as we get more into kitchen tech, as we understand more about the the challenges our world is facing, uh, there are lots of uh, you know dots that get connected, and there are more sparks around how our users tell us what they want. We also learn more what what can be done. How can we simplify people's lives around having simple, healthy meals at home? So. What's the status now? You said this, you, what, 18, 17 prototypes? I can't remember the exact number. Yeah. But, but now you have a machine that you're happy selling. People are happy to buy. You're mm-hmm. gathering data on it. Like, I presume oh. you're still iterating on the machine as well. So, so we've been in the market for close to a year now. And, uh, our users have made more than 10 million rotis. Oh my God. Yeah. It's a number that blows us away as well. More than 10 million rotis have been made on Rotimatics in the users' homes. We are not counting. We make thousands of rotis every day for our reliability testing. We're not counting that. So right. there's a huge uptake in uh, in how this is integrated in people's lifestyles, how they've uh, resonated with the with our premise of, you know, healthy is when you know what goes in uh, in what you're eating. So it's just been incredible in terms of the reception we've got for the product. Yeah, I mean, I used to make, and again, there's a slight equivalency here, right? But I used to make pasta at home, mm. right? So you have, so you have flour, you have water or eggs, depending on how you want to make it, and maybe a little bit of oil or salt or whatever. But you can literally, the beauty for me, I'm not a cook or a chef at any level, but the beauty for me was I could actually experiment on how to make things, but. Again, I did it on my counter, right? So I was literally taking a fork, mixing up some eggs and some flour. I'm sure you've done this before. But it's super unscientific. And, you know, the first 15 times you do it, it's awesome. But then it just becomes a tiresome chore. And to be able to automate that in a way that still allows it to be healthy, but also to gather the data around just making it easy to do. You know, it's great to be able to just press a button and have this perfectly homemade, healthy product that gets created from it. Wow, I mean, just the thought about what other things you can do now that you've understood the development process, but also the um, the building process as well, right? Correct, correct, absolutely. So, what have you learned about like where do you manufacture this? We manufacture this in Malaysia. The world's second largest manufacturer is our manufacturing partner for this product. Yeah, I won't even ask. I'll I'll leave that proprietary information to you. But so. 120 people, all of them, not all of them in Singapore, obviously. I presume you're including some of the manufacturing people that are in Malaysia as well, yeah? So if I add the manufacturing people, it's going to be another 200 people. Wow. Okay, so that's just engineers, product people, designers, marketing people, all that kind of stuff. Support, yeah. Wow. And and you just rolled it out a year. So what are the plans going forward? Like this sounds well more interesting than I had expected, but very super stuff, yeah? What are the plans? Thank you. Uh, you know, we, we stand by our uh, vision of, of reinventing not just the way to make flat bread, but also flat bread. We believe uh, that, you know, if you offer people the right convenience and the right health, we feel that this will, of course, you know, there, there, is, there are the people who eat the flat bread. And like I said, 25% of the world's population eats some some form of flat bread or the other and we mm-hmm. want to make sure that this reaches people who need it there's still a large percentage of the population that needs it so we want to make sure that it reaches them there's a lot of work around improving our oper- operational efficiencies improving 
manufacturing throughput, all of that, expanding to other markets. So a lot of work around uh, focusing on and expanding into this category completely. Right. What does it feel like, though, to work on something for eight years? Like, you just don't give up. You iterate so many times, and now there's actually a product out there where you can feel super proud that's doing kind of all the things you wanted it to do when you first had the idea. Like, what does that feel like? So, you know, if you had asked me this question just a year ago, I would have had a very different answer. <laughs> tell me, tell me, tell me both. <laughs> so, you know, there was a lot of uh, anticipation because it was a, it was a hypothesis uh, that we had in mind that people would um, care about convenience or health as much as we did. We started doubting ourselves a little bit, thinking that, you know, what if we were the extra health freaks and, and uh, we were overthinking this and, uh, but, um, Within the year, you know, we have a, I don't know if you might want to check it out later. We have a, a Facebook group. It's open to public for browsing. It's called Rotimatic Owners. And when we browse through that group and see what people are doing, how well in, integrated this has become, how much convenience and health this is bringing in their lives, somehow we feel it's all just been worth it. And now we feel it's just the beginning of the journey. See, most companies don't spend eight years in R&D and then start commercialization. Right. So we, you know, we are also, we feel that we've, we've achieved a lot, but we also feel that there's also the start. And uh, there's another way we look at it is, you know, if you look at uh, sliced bread. Now, mm -hmm. sliced bread is pervasive across the world because of its convenience, yep. its cost. And uh, health, of course, is a little bit questionable from at least from aware the way we see it, yep. we look at Rotimatic in the long term, in the midterm, uh, finding resonance with people who value convenience, value economy. So Rotimatic rotis are extremely economical and who also value health. So, you know, wh why can't we do, you know, wrap, wraps instead of sandwiches if, if, uh, Sliced bread, in our, as in our mind, is not the healthiest because it's too processed these days. Way too processed. And isn't, the, isn't it the case, I mean, bread really is just something you put stuff in between so you can eat it without getting your hands dirty. It, to, to, for my mind, right? Like, even when I get a hamburger today, I order it without the bun so I can just cut it up and eat it with a fork and a knife. I don't like it. But if you had some healthier thing to wrap around it, like I do lettuce sometimes. But if you had healthier bread to put around it, you definitely do it. Absolutely. And, you know, this is more and more pertinent for people who have younger growing kids. Sure. You know, it just it just makes uh, a lot of sense. Of course, as with any new generation of the product, there is a lot of ground for us to cover in terms of, uh, you know, getting everywhere, being available. It's a new concept, new category. People don't really understand. You know, this is like the world's first washing machine equivalent. People don't really know how well it does, whether it works, how well it works. Those are exactly the questions people have, and that's the main uh, endeavor of the company to bring this product in people's experience so they can decide whether it's, it works for them, it fits their lifestyle or not. Yeah, it sounds awesome. So tell me, besides the Facebook group, um, where else can people get information about the Rotimatic? So Rotimatic information is primarily on our website, our Facebook group, and the rest is Google. Right. So what's the website called? It's called rotimatic.com. That's easy. That's easy, yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure that people knew it. Um, 
Look, I think this is a great way to end. The only thing I'll say is you've kind of ruined the specialty in a way of, you know, that you were telling me about the in the old days, right, the arranged marriage where someone would have to go through that test. So you've removed that as like a precursor, which actually is a fabulous thing, right, because you've taken away that as a judgment point for somebody, and that can only be positive, I think. Absolutely. As you know, women are more in the work, they deserve to have a... Absolutely easier life absolutely anyway look this has been a really interesting conversation for me hopefully it's been as interesting and um, fun for you as well and i really appreciate your time it has been it was actually wonderful talking to you 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 have a big breadth of uh, experience across industries and verticals it's good good speaking to you you've been listening to asia tech podcast find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com